our series, I'm not rushing it. It's uh, Life Principles According to Jesus. Make sure you tune in or be here on Sunday because we're going to have some fun on Sunday. So I won't give you any more than that. But we are looking today, tonight, at some of Jesus' first lessons, life lessons that he teaches his followers as they first started to gather. In doing this, we're focusing again, if you are just tuning in, you've missed the previous weeks, make sure you tune in because these are definitely good biblical Jesus teachings about life principles. And so last week, we looked at the value of the vow, what Jesus had to say about adultery and marriage. But now Jesus talks about how to deal with people you don't like. Is there anybody? Never mind. We won't go there. Have you ever in your lifetime from birth until now, anywhere in the world, come across someone you just didn't like? Raise your hand if that's you. Some of you are so afraid to raise your hand right now. They're like, the Lord already knows. Okay, just because you raise your hand doesn't make you any more of a sinner than someone else that has raised their hand, okay? And it's not even a sin to not like someone. The Bible says we're to love everyone. But, you know, I think is it's possible to love everybody but just be like, but I don't like spending time with them. Well, I'm supposed to be giving you those answers, right? Well, how does the Bible want us to handle people we don't like? That's a great life principle. We get into practical things here on Wednesday nights. And so if I could put a title on this particular uh, lesson, it's when you do these things. Jesus says this in his Sermon on the Mount. Several times you'll see them specifically in tonight's lesson. When you do this, when you do the, when you do this, when you do this. And so we just want to pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, where would we be without you, your blood, your word, your spirit? God, we'd be lost for sure, for certain, Lord. But we're thankful that we can sing a song about the power of your blood because it still cleanses and washes away sin. We can, Lord Jesus, be thankful for your spirit to fill us and lead us and guide us. But Lord Jesus, we're also so grateful for your word, God, because we get to, to see the, the, the letters that you preserved for us. You allowed them to be translated into our known languages, and then we can study them and see things in them tonight. Lord, that thousands of years earlier, principles remain and are preserved, Lord Jesus, for us to, to apply to our own lives, God, and still continue in our sanctification and growth process. In your name we pray, amen. So you go to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 38. I made a joke. We're not going to stay. It's not going to be a 37-week series, but I did say to my wife recently, I said, we're on week 5, and I'm still in Matthew 5, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. At some point, I'm going to have to pick up, pick up the, the pace a little bit, but uh, I don't want to rush this. So many different topics. Um, you've heard it said, he said, you've heard, you, you've heard that the law that says that punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. People still quote this today sometimes, and you're like, you better read on because that's... <laughs> he says, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Again, each week I say the same thing. I wonder if the crowd just started to diminish as he spoke. Because at one point later, he says, are you guys going to leave too? Because his teaching was not popular. When he starts talking about, you know, should I eat my flesh? And people are like, whoa, I'm out of here. Because they didn't really understand the context of that. But no matter what, as we talked about in week one, there was commitment. He did not demand perfection. God never demands perfection. But he demands commitment. He always demands consecrated commitment. And so he says, turn, turn the other cheek. And again, you're here. You just started following. Maybe this new rabbi steps on the scene. And you're just like, imagine hearing this for the first time. He says, if you're sued in court and your shirt's taken, give me your coat too. I doubt. 
there were a lot of people in that crowd going, Amen! If a soldier demands to carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Man. Continues the same pattern. You've heard it said, but I say, because, you know, everything Jesus, everything in the law, he took the law and he makes this clear. I keep saying some of these same principles so that in case you missed it, you don't miss it tonight. But he kept, he just, he makes it clear from the get-go. He says, I'm, I didn't come to destroy the law. That was, that was the accusations that he knew were going to be brought against him. That's amazingly what they're trying to put him on the cross for, the Jewish people. He's, he's, he's against the law. He's, he says from the get-go, he says, I'm not against the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. The law pointed out the shortcomings, and now it brings us to this point where you know you need a Savior. The law isn't good enough. And so now he's getting them ready for the fact that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my spirit inside you eventually, and then you're going to walk by my spirit, but I'm going to wash away your sins. Uh, you're going to repent of them, and, and, and I'm going to put my spirit inside of you, and then the law is going to be written on your heart. And so he, he does not go lower than the law. He says everything he does, he says, you, here's what the law said. Here's what you've been taught, but I say... Here's what the law says, but I say. Here's what the law says, you, you supped with this person, but I say if you've looked on him with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. But here's what, here's what the law says, but I say. Everything went to the next level. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and we still have not perfected some of his teaching. Because he says in verse 43, you've heard the law says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They're like, Amen. But I say, love your enemies. How about that? Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and unjust alike. If you love only the people who love you back. What reward is there for that? Tax collectors who were despised, despicable, hated by almost everybody in society in that day except for other tax collectors. And they might have even hated them too because they stole their profit. I mean, like you're talking about some of the most hated people in society that he refers to there. He says, even tax collectors, the people you despise, hate, and think are hellbound no matter what. Even they love people who love them back. So today, the law says, love people who love you back, hate them that, that do wrong to you. But I say, love the people who hate you and you hate them. Turn that hate into love. And he says, if you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Because in the beginning, he says, you're going to be salt into the world. You're going to be light in the world. So in order to be light in darkness, you have to be different than the surrounding people of their way of life, their mindset. And so he's saying, in order to be different, you have to be drastically different, and I'm calling you to a drastic change. You think it's okay to love someone who loves you and hate someone who hates you, but I say, love the people who are hurting you. I don't care if it's intentional. I don't care if they ever ask for forgiveness. Love the people who persecute me. He says, even the pagans can love someone who loves them, but you're to be perfect. Oh, I thought you just said, you just said he never demands perfection. Perfection in the Greek there means a completeness. Not, it does not mean without sin. It, it means here in Greek, it means complete or mature. So he's saying, be complete. Even your father in heaven is complete or mature. Even unholy sinners can love people who love them back. But this is what, exactly, you look to Jesus. This is exactly what he did. He never preached anything that he didn't live. That's why I love Jesus Christ. That's why for a while there, people were teaching a doctrine called divine flesh doctrine where, where Jesus was a, a, a God man, but not a human. And so he had different type of flesh than we had. And so he, he, he couldn't sin, which you can have that argument all day long, except for Hebrews says he was in all manner and points tempted to sin like we were tempted to sin the difference was he did it and we did 
And so I'm thankful that when I, when I cry out to God, bow a knee, raise a hand, shed a tear, I'm talking to a Savior who has walked, literally walked in my shoes. He didn't cheat. He experienced what we experienced, betrayal, loss, hurt, agony, dealing with difficult people. And so he's preaching and he's teaching this, but then he lives it. You go on to Luke 23, 34, Jesus is hanging on a cross. And what does he say? Hey, guys, bless them and love them that persecute you. But I'm not going to do it. No, no, he's hanging on a cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers, isn't it interesting if a soldier asks you to carry something? He talked about soldiers and tax collectors, people that were despised by them. That they, he, he pulled the most hated, vile people of that day and used them as examples. And then he hangs on a cross and he prays for the soldiers that he told his followers to pray for when he first called them. In order to effectively reach our world, Jesus knew that his followers somehow you ready for this? Because this is a good line. He knew that in order to effectively reach our world, and this still rings true today, that his followers somehow had to love people who did not love them back. In order to be successful, to be what God has called us to be in 2021, we have to find a way to love people who do not love us back. To reach out and minister to people who may be hurting or wronging us, sometimes intentionally. And later followers of Christ had to put this difficult uh, instruction into action when they came across a man named Saul, who later has his name changed to Paul. You see Acts 9.1, it says, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. It was eager to kill the Lord's followers. It wasn't just his job. He was eager to kill the Lord's followers. That was his desire. So he went to the high priest. The high priest didn't call for him. That eagerness appear, apparently caused him to go looking for the job. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation, the arrest of followers of the way. We're still followers of the way. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Not necessarily an easy person to love. Hey, Saul's coming for chains. Where is he? I want to give him a hug. But then God gets a hold of Saul and blinds him and sends him on a street called Straight in Acts 9.10. It says, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord. <laughs> the Lord, I, I wonder, you know, that yes, Lord. I wonder if he's just pumped. Like, God's speaking to me. Ananias, I have a job. Yes. What is it? I want you to go to Straight Street. House of Judas, when you get there, ask for a man named Tarsus. His name's Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming, laying hands on him. He's going to see again. But, Lord, <laughs> it started with, yes, Lord. How often does God call us? And we're like, yes, Lord. And then when the job is assigned, we're like, but, Lord, <laughs> Lord, that's a servant's job. Well, you had, you had said you wanted to serve me. You had just prayed, use me, and, but now you're complaining that I'm using you. Yes, Lord. That's a whole message. I could preach that whole message. When yes, Lord, becomes but, Lord. See? Take that evangelist. Go preach that all over the country. <laughs> but Lord, he says, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers of Jerusalem. You want me to go to Straight Street? I'll go to Straight Street. I'll go to the house of Judas. Don't have me come in contact with Saul. That guy's got a reputation. He's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone calling on your name. 
The Lord said, go. <laughs> the Lord doesn't listen to us sometimes. I mean, yes, Lord, but Lord, go. Saul's my chosen instrument. Take the message to the Gentiles and the kings, as well as the people of Israel. He's got a big job to do. I'm going to show him how, how much he's going to have to suffer in my namesake. How would you like that to be your calling? Hey, buddy, I just, my name's Ananias. You're Saul. I know. Nice to meet you. God told me to come pray with you, and you're going to suffer a lot. I wonder if that part made him feel better for a minute. I'm here to give you a message. God has called you <laughs> to suffer. He says, so Ananias went and found Saul, laid his hand on him. And I don't think that was Ananias' attitude because, wow, look at the first word out of Ananias' mouth. The way the New Testament church grew, they were a team, man, I'm going to talk about that on Sunday. It was not, you scoundrel, you dog, no doubt, there's no doubt in my brain. I can't prove it biblically, but there's no doubt in my head that Ananias personally knew people who were either killed or arrested or persecuted by Saul. No doubt in my mind. People he knew personally that were probably most likely arrested, killed, persecuted by Saul. Now Saul, Ananias, I want you to go reach Saul. Tell him I've called him. But God... Come on, man. You know who this guy is? Yeah, and I got a plan for him. He's going to do great things, but he's going to suffer greatly too, and I want you to go to him. Next thing you know, Brother Saul. Wow. Instantly, he's part of the family. Brother Saul, I'm here to lay hands on you. Because the Lord Jesus, not God the Father, that Father, God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. That he, he refers to that God on that street as Jesus. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me that you might regain your sight. And, and Paul, repentance is not, not just belief, Paul. You need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And he starts praying with him. Instantly, scales, something like scales, fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he's baptized. What do we see here? People say, well, that doesn't necessarily say he received the Holy Ghost. Come on, are you kidding me? To send you in and says, Paul, you need the Holy Ghost, and the next thing he says, I want to get baptized. This is exactly what we read through the book of Acts. It was what Peter preached, that repentance, water baptism in Jesus' name, and spirit infilling. Ananias wasn't excited, but he was willing to go. And when he went, he said, Brother Saul, you're a part of us now. That was even before he was baptized and filled with the Spirit. Just his hunger and openness to God. He said, you're in. I wonder if the words of Christ needed to ring in the head of Ananias when he approached Saul. In Acts Matthew 5, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ananias had to walk into a home and pray for a man that he knew 24, 36, 48 hours ago would have cut his head off in an instant, would have stoned him to death and not thought twice. And he had to walk in and go, Brother Saul, I'm here to pray for you. If we can only love people who love us back, we will never be able to accomplish all that God desires to accomplish in us and through us. For we are still called to love people who are rude to us, hurt us, even if it's intentional. Those who would like nothing more than for us to fail. But Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Be complete and mature in him. And honestly, this hate clause that everybody said, oh, it's in the New Old Testament. That was the Old Testament. It's a misconception that Jesus was aiming to clear up because even in the Old Testament, there was, certain to be, there was supposed to be a certain level of kindness, even to an enemy. Look at the law of Moses, Exodus 23, verse 4 and 5. If you come upon your enemy's 
ox or donkey that straight away take it back to its owner. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under its load, don't walk by. Instead, stop and help. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, you still stop and help. So this, is, this was a misconception that Jesus is aiming to, to clear up here. God never approved of just hating your enemy. Then we move into Matthew 6, and we see Jesus introduce the theme of the next section of teaching. Because remember, as we've been talking about, Jesus was emphasizing what was on the inside and not just what was on the outside, which was opposite of the Pharisees because they were em emphasizing just the outside and not really looking at themselves inside. So Jesus, he later goes on to rebuke the Pharisees in a harsh rebuke. In Matthew 23, he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs. Because every once in a while, you know, that decay, that mold, that algae, that when you just start to cover the tomb, so you just throw white paint over the top of it. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people. But inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. I hope the Lord never says that to me. And you got it together. You look the part. You look like you're a Christian, apostolic, Pentecostal believer. Everything looks good. But inside, inside, when I wrote the discipleship course, that started as a 15 lesson. It became a 16 lesson because I added one lesson after the fact. And that was internal holiness. Because in my interactions with people, I was like, man, there's certain things that look great on the outside, but inside it's a mess. So I've got to talk about those things. They were so focused on how they looked to people. Inside they're a mess, outside they appeared holy. And it was like that for hundreds of years. And Jesus steps on, onto the scene and he's like, I don't want it like this anymore. And so after teaching about topics of handling anger, sexual sin, adultery, being heart issues, vows, revenge, and loving enemies, he then reminds them about making sure that they are holy for the right reasons. They weren't called to this just so they could be holier than everyone else. Like, I come and bring my offering, and I pray louder than everyone so I can have my prayer tassels, and just so that people look, and they, wow, that's a great man or woman of God. If you're going to be holy, look at why you're being holy in the first. It's not just what you're not doing, but let's examine what you are doing. And so this is where he turns to the next portion of teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, versus Matthew 6, 1. He says, watch out. Exclamation point. Jesus, a little passionate. Watch out! Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. You're just going to lose your reward from the Father which is in heaven. And then he says, when you give. And I'll pause there because I've come across people now, been teaching, leading for a while. There's people that say tithing is not a New Testament thing. Anybody heard this? The Bible does not say you must tithe, bring your tithe to the storehouse. That's the first 10%. You've got to do this. So why would Jesus not teach this? Obviously, we are not called to do that. That was an Old Testament thing. Imagine you got a 16-year-old daughter. She's been riding her bike since she's five. You're going to go on a bike ride, and you say, Honey, I'm going to pick this bike up. I'm going to show you how this thing works. This is called a pedal. And you put your foot on it. And you just begin to push that pedal. These are the brakes. And your 16-year-old is going to look at you and be like, what is wrong with you? I've been doing this for 11 years. What it, what's wrong with you? You don't have to reteach something that's been around for 11 years. Jesus is speaking to religious people who are starting to follow him. He does not need to go. Now let's go back into the tithe. And let me begin to teach to you what the tithe is. They'd be like, we've been doing this for thousands of years. Abraham started bringing the tithe to Melchizedek. This thing has been around for thousands of years. So Jesus simply says, when you give. It wasn't, it wasn't, 
It wasn't if you give. It's not like I need to teach you about giving. It was such a commonplace spiritual discipline. Tithing is all through the Bible. So he doesn't reteach something that they already, they had to memorize the Old Testament. Why would he reteach? He's just, when you give, it's a biblical thing. It's, it's not even up in the air. It's just, now let me address when you do it. When you do it to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to your acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they got their reward already. When you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Give your gifts in private, and your father who sees everything will reward you. <laughs> I remember I, I saw a church bulletin board one time that it said, Giving, and it was that year, like 1995. It says giving for 1995, and it listed out everybody's names and how much they had given to the church that year. Oh, my Lord, that's hardcore right there. Imagine coming in the whole foyer. It's just like all the list of who gave what. You'd be like, oh, I can't believe that. But then you'd be like. Honey, did you see? He says, when you give, don't let them, he says, give your gifts in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. There was an expectation for Christians to be givers. Jesus gave the most sacrificial. He was the most giving person in human history. It concerns me when Christians, godly people who claim to be followers of Christ are just takers. Who don't give. Who don't give of time, don't give of finance, don't give of resource. I just, can you help me? Can you do this? I want you... At some point, we, oh, man, if I'm going to reflect Christ, I want to be a giver, not just a taker. And so this is why he says, when you give, it was never if. It was just, it was an expectation. And so he, being a giver, he wants them to know when you give, examine your heart. Why are you giving? Because they were giving. Oh, I'm coming in to give my money. It was just a, it was a party. They all got their reward. But notice, now he goes in and the same thing comes next. He says in verse 5, when you pray. Now, guys, it's important to pray. We may make sure, we got to make sure that we're talking to the Lord because prayer. Now, we've been doing this. It's, it's, it's a spiritual discipline. It's an expectation. So now let's talk about when you pray. Not if, because we should all be praying. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and synagogues where everybody can see them. Oh, Lord, I thank God that I'm not like this one. You got the sinner going over there. God, help me. And you're looking, Lord, I thank God I'm not like him. I'll tell you the truth, that's the only reward they're going to get. When you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you. Pray to your father in private. And your father who sees you, who sees everything, will reward you. That's not saying you can't pray in a corporate setting. Understand the context. It was people who were looking to be known for their giving, known for their prayer. And there's a, even the, there's belief about the prayer shawl. Bring it over. It wasn't necessarily a really a literal closet. They would just kind of close the shawl and begin to pray inside of it. Today, Jewish people will still do this. I want... When I went to Israel, they were, I can't even laugh, Chad's not here, but when I went to Israel, they, uh, they, they right on the plane, all of a sudden you'd hear, because they pray there multiple times a day, and you'd hear them, and you're like, takes you a minute, it's all dark in the plane, but there they are, they have the shades lifted, and they're just got their prayer shawls over them, just praying. And uh, he says, when you pray, you just, it's not about, oh, you can't have a corporate prayer meeting. But make sure that you're doing it for the Examine your heart. He was telling them not to use prayer as a means to draw attention to themselves. He says, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered by repeating words over and over again. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you're going to say before you say it. He didn't say you don't need to say it. You're going to say it. But God wants to hear us. There's power in the spoken word. There was since he created the world in Genesis. 
There's power in the spoken word. And so we speak prayer. But he already knows. We don't have to. You know, sometimes like people, I don't know how to pray. Well, do you know how to talk? Do you know how to converse with a friend? That's it. We don't have to pray like, oh, you know, I'm going to come up to you as the pastor and say, excuse me, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. I only heard you use three thous and four these. And we usually require at least ten. I don't know. It's just, it's, God help me. He's using that guy that's beating his chest. God, I'm a sinner. It wasn't, he didn't sound like, wow, he was so intelligent. No, it's just that transparent reality of who we are. And he says, don't be like them. Be you. Be genuine. Don't, you don't have to bring a script to God. Pet peeve. This is not Bible. And maybe some of you do this, so forgive me. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but pet peeve. Somebody says, I'm going to open. Will you pray for the wedding? Will you pray for the, the football game? Will you pray for whatever? And people come up. Oh, gracious Lord of all of the universe. Blessing and honor be unto thee, O great God of heaven. I'm like, man, come on. You're reading a little poem you wrote. That's not a prayer. Who cares? Why well, might trip over my words? Well, who cares? You're talking to God. Never wrote down a prayer in my life, and I'll never will unless God tells me to at some point. But it's important to be engaged as we pray. You know, sometimes we can even get like this where we walk around and we're going, oh, it would be God, heavenly Jesus, mighty God, mighty God, heavenly Lord, praise God, mighty Jesus, hallelujah, hallelujah. We're like 30 minutes into full church prayer and we're like, man, I've only said, praise God, hallelujah, mighty God, blessed be. I've only said four phrases over and over for 30 minutes. Because our minds, we, you know, we start to run. So we go back to like these phrases that we've just gotten accustomed to saying to God. Sometimes I'm ever wondering if God's listening to me and like, Gary, dude, you've said that 13 times. Can we move on to something else? <laughs> I mean, imagine talking to your spouse. You're like, oh, honey, I love you. Oh, honey, how, you are so great. Honey, you are so wonderful. I love you, honey. Honey, you are so great. Some of y'all would like that, but I think it's weird after a while. <laughs> so then he gives the Lord's prayer and he says, Here's how you should pray. Now, some people I know, well-respected, godly, spirit-filled individuals, will pray the Lord's Prayer every single day. There's no sin in that. You can feel free to do that. If you say, man, I pray God's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer every day, and it really helps me get focused, do it. Praise God. It's fine. But he was not saying you need to repeat these words. It was a pattern of prayer. So I do not pray the Lord's Prayer every day. But I pray in that manner, as he said, pray in this manner. And so he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. And that's New Living Translation. I'm going to mess some of you up. We can just go to King James. Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so this is interesting because Jews, Jews rarely addressed God as Father. But do you know that Jesus did so in every single prayer he prayed but one that's why if you're a oneness person you don't have to be afraid of father language it's biblical i just i don't even want to say father because some of you might think i'm a trinitarian it's in the bible don't be afraid of the bible he prayed to the father he said father in every single prayer but one in romans 8 paul writes to the church and says we're no longer under bondage but we now have received the spirit so we can cry, Abba, Father. In Greek, that is literally Daddy or Papa. What an amazing relationship God wants with his people. That Jesus sets the tone of how to pray. It's not just, oh, the God of the universe. It's Daddy, Papa, I need you. That intimate, intimate relationship with our Father. He says, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on the earth. Give us this day as our daily bread is as we need, and forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who forgive us or who, who sin against us. Those who have experienced God's forgiveness will forgive. It's as simple as that. Jesus almost implies here that those who are unwilling to forgive maybe have not received forgiveness themselves. And perhaps maybe they have never actually truly repented. 
Don't let us yield into temptation. Rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you refuse to forgive, your Father won't forgive you either. Yikes. I'm going to have our team pass out a prayer clock right now. Um, if you have never had a prayer, if you already have one, you can keep But if you want one, just raise your hand. This is, really helps guide prayer. Just walk around, and uh, they're going to get those out. It's a two-sided form. This is interesting. Hopefully you can listen as they're handing that out. Just give one to everybody. If you don't want it, put it on the back pew. Don't leave it on the pew. This makes me feel bad about myself. Like you're not interested in my handout. <clears throat> so on the back, it's a description of all these things. If you're online, you can see these things here. I'll take a minute with this because this, to me, revolutionized my prayer life at a very young age. My dad would require us to go to the church that we were growing up at, and we'd get there at 8. My mom was a teacher. School would start at 8.30, and so from 8 to 8.30, 8 to 8.20, he'd want me and my sister, like, in the sanctuary and spending some time in prayer. Your dad made you pray? He, that should be your own choice. Okay, kids need instruction and boundaries, and they said, and my dad, I'm going to never forget one time I was, I was laying on the pew sleeping, and I opened, my, 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 I opened up my eyes. <laughs> and my dad showed up that day of all the days he showed up that day and he's staring at me and I opened up my eyes and looked at my dad and I did not say daddy papa I was like Ooh. <laughs> Lord he said is this the way you pray every day uh no okay yeah let's let's get up and move around if you get tired let's not lay on the pew and I said dad I'm just like Peter I just fell asleep and, and just kidding I didn't get that smart um but this is funny. So this to me, it helped me because instead of those, oh, thee, oh, God, thou art great, 20 minutes later, I'm like, what did I even just do with my last 20 minutes? I hate that feeling. I'm a productive person. I hate to feel, and this is why some people don't like prayer, because you get through the time and you're like, what did I just accomplish? I, I didn't do anything. I don't feel like I connected with God at all. So this allowed me to feel like I was connected because I, I would say, you know what, I can, I'm going to pray for these 30 minutes, and, and then it would grow, and then it would grow because what happens is you'd find, oh, I'm just going to pray. It, it, I'm going to look at this prayer clock, and let's say I say, oh, I'm going to pray for 30 minutes, and you can scratch out whatever doesn't work for you. For, for me, for instance, uh, pray, uh, reading the Bible. I read the Bible, and I study at a different time than my prayer time. If you think that's unholy, pray for me. Um, but I study at a different time. It's not in my prayer time. In my prayer time, it's, it's something different. So you can cross off what doesn't like, what you don't like. I love this because I'm structured, and I like that routine, and I like that. Now, if you go talk to my wife, she despises every time I talk about this. She can't stand it. She hates this prayer clock. She's like, why do I want to structure? This is my time with Jesus, and you want me to put myself in a box with these little this segment and this segment and this segment. She's like, you're crazy. What is wrong with you? She hates it. So this might be you. You might be like, ah, uh, yeah, I'm with your wife. This is nuts. I love, I'm a sanguine. You're like, God, I love you. Whoa, did you see that dog? Jesus, thank you for dogs. <laughs> you're like, my husband just got home. What? Oh, thanks for my husband. He didn't do the dishes. God help him to do the dishes, you know? Like, you're just all over the place, and you're fine with that. That's not you. I'm not saying it's you. I'm saying you might like that, that free fall. You can, you can go wherever you want. You can cry. You can pray. You can be structured. You follow the leading of the Spirit. See, that sounds nicer. You can pray in all different ways. And to me, I'm like, I want, like, I like, in my head right now, I can tell you my structure. I know I've been doing it long enough that I say, I walk in, I begin to praise. Lord, I love you. God, you are worthy. You are magnificent. You spoke this world into these. I move into a time of forgiveness. God, I want, Lord, before I even, I, I know biblically I can't say forgive me. I got to look at what I have toward other people first. Lord, help me. Examine my heart right now. If there's somebody who I'm angry at, that, that bitterness has took root. If there's something in there, God, bring it to the surface. Help me. Help people to forgive me and my family. Because I got kids, and they're not always nice to people. And I don't want people to have bitterness toward my kids or me or my wife. God, help me. And then I move into forgiveness. Jesus, God, or confession. God, forgive me of my sins. Lord, for, cleanse me. Wash me. Remove the things that are in me. I move into petition. That's what we're really good at. That's the I want. I want. Please bless. Please bless. I want. Please bless. 
And then we move into that. And after that, you move into a time of intercession. And I begin to intercede. And, oh, God, I'm praying for the people of the church, the leaders, the, the, the community, the politicians, our governor, our, our mayor. And, and we begin to pray for, for, for those people. And I'm praying for my spouse, for my kids, and, and, and all these things. Good thing I'm structured. I might forget to pray for you some days. I feel like she's going to talk to me about this later. I'm not, I did not say that's the way she prays. She's powerful, okay? So then, and then there's a time of thanksgiving. And, oh, God, I just thank you. God, I'm so grateful, not only for the spiritual things, even for the earthly things, for the family, the health, things you bless us with, Lord. I thank you. There's even a time of praying the word. You know, so there's these times. And then, of course, you start and end with praise. And as I bring this to a close, God, thank you again. You are marvelous. You are magnificent. I want to be spirit-led in all things. And so you begin to, to, to work your way around, and you say, here's how much time I have. Wow, okay, if, if, if I'm only choosing six of these things and I have 30 minutes, that's five minutes for each of those six things, you're going to find out, well, that was pretty easy. Wow. All of a sudden, you walk away, and you're like, I feel like I just connected with God. I, we, we just, we talked about we talked about interceding, read the word. I prayed the word. I prayed for people. I, this was awesome. And now you're not like just, I don't know what I did for 30 minutes. I said, I love you, Jesus. Thee, thou, thou art great 74 times. And I don't feel any different. For those of you who are melancholy personality, you're welcome. For those of you who are sanguine personality, I'm sorry that you just had to listen to that. You take it for what it's worth, and maybe that will help someone. And so it does show a biblical pattern, though. And the last thing I'll mention in this lesson is this topic of fasting. We cover this one last tonight because it's what Jesus said about giving and then about praying. And we see the exact same thing again with fasting in Matthew 6.16. It says, when you fast. Expectation. You're going to be a follower of me. He does not say, guys, fasting is important. Now, if you're going to fast, here's what you need to do. I want it this much. I want you to fast this. No, that's something that's between you and him. But he says, when you fast, if you're going to be a follower of me, there was a divine expectation that the spiritual discipline of fasting would be a part of your life. And so fasting, if you don't have a regular fast day, there should be. That's, that, again, that's just the structured side <laughs> of me. But that regular day that you say that there's a day every week that I'm fasting something at minimum. I think it was Vesta and G.A. Mangan that fasted at one point three out of seven days every week. I said, man, I can't imagine that. Well, you can if you look at what they did in their community and their lives. This kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. When you fast, don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable, <laughs> disheveled, so you'll admire them. Could you imagine three-day fast? You come to church, just like, I'm so hungry. Did you do your hair? No, I just had no energy to do my hair. I'm in the middle of an in-depth fast right now. You really are? Yes, it's close to seven. Tell you the truth, that's the only reward they're going to get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. Maybe I should preach that. We need to do that around, you know, make sure everybody knows that. <laughs> Somebody go down to children and student ministries and let them know that scripture exists, right? Just wanted you guys to know. And pastor added the word bathe, too. So tell my kids, all right? Comb your hair, wash your face. And no one will notice you're fasting except your father who knows you do it in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. Again, clear instructions Jesus expects. We give, we pray, we fast. And prayer and fasting are often linked Old and New Testament. But he also expects us to do it with a right heart. And that's why he regularly calls them and us to examine ourselves. He even calls for us to examine ourselves. He says that too before communion. The communion, he doesn't. He says when you do it, he doesn't say you need to do it weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly. 
It's just whenever we do it, we just have to make sure that we're stopping and we're examining ourselves before we take and say, this is my body, this is my blood, right? I'm examining myself because everything he wanted, he was changing the mindset of the, the law was good, but I'm here to fulfill it, not condemn it, but it brought you to a place where you know you were a person in need. I'm the one that's going to give you power to be the overcomer, but I still want you to examine the reasons why you do all these things. Law of Moses had 613 commands. You just got used to wear that, don't wear that, worship this way, do it on this, prepare the meat this way, do the sacrifice this way. Uh, yeah, hey, you know, you could do it in your sleep. And he's going, yeah, I told you to fast. I told you to pray. I told you to give. These are all, but when you do it, examine why. Simon Sinek was not the first one to talk about the why. It was Jesus. And so as I close, just as he did back then with those or initial followers, Jesus is still calling his believers to the spiritual disciplines of giving, praying, and fasting. They're not, they're not suggestions. They're expectations. He expects these things from us. And if you're saying, well, I just always struggle with this, prayerfully, hopefully that prayer clock will help structure some guiding. If you're not fasting, say, okay, let me talk. Maybe with somebody you trust, your spouse, and say, what's going to be our fast? And what are we going to fast? It needs to be a sacrifice. That you start to build that into your lifestyle. Giving. That's why he calls for the tithe. The tithe is the first 10%. He, he talks about tithes and offering. Tithe is the first 10% because every human being in the world, if you say, oh, I'm going to see if I have anything left over, will never have anything left over. So he says, give the first 10%. But in doing all these things, examine your heart. Why? Why are you doing this? Why? Oh, I just, it's nine in the morning. Oh, that's the hour of prayer. No, 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 no. I need to stop and say, I'm now entering into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And, and I want to be intentional about what I'm doing. Not only what, but why. And so in giving these expectations, he was telling the guard against the concept of just tradition. And it's so funny because we will say, Bless God, I'm against tradition. I don't do it for tradition. Do you know how many traditions we have? I'm going to get off this real fast because this is like a sacred cow. You don't touch this. There's a lot of things apostolic Pentecostals do too that are true. Now, we will say we believe everything in the word of God. And absolutely, and I believe that, we preach the word. But some things, like if we next week took all the pews out and we set up a circle of chairs, some of y'all would freak out. You'd absolutely freak out. If I for some reason showed up on Sunday and I didn't wear a tie, some people might freak out. There's certain things that I'm fine with. I think there's, but, but, but we can get to traditions. Someone took your parking spot, your pew. We say, bless God, I'm not for traditions. Why are you in my seat? <laughs> you know, I don't want to be one of those churches with a bunch of traditions. Traditions, uh, Pastor, do you know somebody sat in my park? They took my parking spot. I'm scheduled for ministry on the first Sunday of every month in I'm not scheduled this month till the second. This is all hypothetical. This doesn't really happen. <laughs> See, I'm getting so sarcastic. Y'all think this is real stuff. It's not really. But you get the point. That sometimes traditions, we have our own traditions too. I mean, some of you put up a Christmas tree, or you have Thanksgiving at this time, or you, we always have cranberries at Thanksgiving. If you don't have cranberries, like, Thanksgiving is ruined. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's, there's just, you know, but we, we always have ham on Christmas. Somebody brings in enchiladas, you're like, what? We got traditions. But, uh, we got to examine the why of our traditions. 
one thing that I think is godly. Don't get me, please don't misunderstand this. When I say this could be a tradition, it doesn't mean it's something that doesn't have meaning and not value and we're gonna change it next week. It's not the case. But I think one of the things is we say, would everybody stand to their feet and we all stand? Go ahead. That's a real, that's a real instruction. And then we say, praise God, these altars are open. And typically, mindlessly, we will just start to approach an open area where there is no pews that has been defined as our altar. And I think this is a powerful place where we leave a comfort zone and approach an area. Altars are found all through the Bible. And an altar was always a place that somebody approached and said, I'm going to lay a sacrifice there in the New Testament. We're the living sacrifice. And I want to lay myself on the altar and say, God, deal with me right now. Lord, consume the sacrifice like you did in the Old Testament. And I want the words that I just heard, I want them to make an impact in me. But sometimes we just come to an altar, we bow a knee and Let's face it, like, well, it's the end of it's Wednesday night. I got to throw in a few minutes, go pick up my kids and get out of here. But what is about to happen right now is I'm going to open up the altar. But why is that about to happen? It's not because it's just a tradition and I'm kind of like, well, I'm out of words. I don't really know what else to do. I guess uh, uh, just come up here and pray. It's so that something that was heard in the word that impacted your heart, because chances are I talked for a while now. I'm still talking. I need to shut up. But something I said, not the whole thing, because you ain't going to remember the whole thing. I probably don't even remember the whole thing. But something impacted your heart and mind to the point where you're like, man, oh, it hit you. And so now I want to approach that altar. Why? Because I want to go before God and I want to actually change. I want to grow. I want to repent. I want to, I, want to, I want to encourage myself in his word. I want to do something that I come up here and I say, I'm stepping out of what I'm accustomed to, going to an altar, a place that's been set apart for me to respond. And I want to respond tonight. That's the why. And so tonight, as I invite you to an altar... Think about why am I coming? Not just where am I going, what I'm doing, but why am I coming? Why am I responding right now? What has he spoken to me that I want to go to a place where I want to examine myself? And I want God to help me mold and shape me through the word that he's just given me and make me the man or the woman that he's called me to be. In the name of Jesus.